disclosure, I'm Craig Sheely. This week, I'm subbing in for Robin Farzad while he slaves away on his upcoming book. Today, we'll be discussing a topic near and dear to my heart, the beautiful country of Venezuela. My lovely wife came to the United States in 2000 from Venezuela, largely to escape the violence which was already escalating following the election of Hugo Chavez in 1998. The popular socialist leader had been elected to power on the premise of mass redistribution of Venezuelan wealth. While the high price of oil over much of the last 10 years financed Chavez's largesse, the lack of investment in infrastructure, widespread corruption, violence, inflation, and more recently the complete lack of basic goods like food, and toilet paper have turned public opinion against the socialist regime. On December 6th of 2015, Venezuelans went to the polls in record numbers and voted for the opposition and against the late Chavez's Socialist Party. For the very first time since 1998, the people gave the opposition nearly 60% of the vote and in the process elected a supermajority of opposition candidates to the Venezuelan National Assembly. However, while the strained economic environment created a huge opportunity for the opposition, part of the recent economic stress stems in part from a dramatic drop in oil prices, where heavy sour Venezuelan crude has recently touched prices under $30 a barrel. So on this complex and troubled backdrop, can this newly emboldened opposition make real reforms? Will this recent downdraft in oil prices push Venezuela into default and further economic meltdown? Will the Maduro government resort to violence? Where can Venezuela go in the next five to ten years? We will address these questions and more as we speak today with our two guests who bring a unique, first-hand perspective and insider's view into the wild world of Venezuelan politics and economics. This is Full Disclosure. Stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market, proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for 25 years, located at the top of Carytown. And you will certainly see me there four, five, six times a week, partaking in the hot breakfast bar, eating at the beat. Visit them in Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. And by Health Warrior, a local Richmond brand that is one of the fastest growing national food companies. Health Warrior, makers of chia bars, make snack food powerful by using superfoods as the first ingredient. The first product they put out, the Health Warrior Chia Bar, I adore. I must eat six or seven of the mango and apple cinnamon varieties every week. Highly recommended. Visit them at healthwarrior.com. Our first guest today is Richard Obucci, joining us via Skype from Caracas, Venezuela. Richard is a professor of public policy and economics at the Instituto de Estudios Superiores de Administración, or ESA, the leading business school in Venezuela. Richard is also a consultant and economic advisor to various government groups and has been very involved in the recent elections. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Richard, let's start off by giving our listeners here in the United States some history and background on how the Chavez movement came to power in Venezuela. Well, as you know, Venezuela has been an oil exporter country. It was one of the richest nations in, in, in Latin America in terms of, of resources. But it had political and economic and social issues for the last uh, 20 years. 
in the middle of these uh, economic and social changes, uh, President Chavez was elected in 1999. Mm -hmm. And he began in the last uh, 15 years a very uh, radical political agenda that was characterized by a very radical economic strategy in which uh, he increases the control of the means of production by the government. He expropriated or nationalized a number of private companies. He uh, set uh, an exchange rate control. He also uses a number of price controls in the economy. He was a, a popular president. He was favored by the price of oil that reached a peak in the, in the last few years. Uh, reaching uh, about $100 per barrel, right. uh, producing an incredibly large amount of resources for the government. This is actually the largest uh, oil boom in Venezuela's history, around $800 billion. But, well, as you uh, know, and your listeners know, President Chavez uh, became ill. He faced one last presidential election. He got reelected, but after a few month he passed away, President Maduro was elected mm -hmm. in a tight election against Mr. Capriles. Mr. Maduro was, has been very, very reluctant to make any economic adjustment or any economic changes in the economic model that has characterized the, the Venezuelan economy. Right. We are now facing a country which is uh, basically, it, it is uh, showing very, very bad economic results. Uh, inflation is uh, the highest in the world. We estimate it could reach uh, something close to 200%. Per, uh, this year alone, uh, Venezuela was uh, experiencing an uh, economic contraction of about 4% of the GDP in 2014. It's probably the largest contraction. Uh, 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 we we're going to face further contraction this year. Uh, there is a lot of shortages and a lot of uh, right. basic products the Venezuelans uh, are lacking right now. Let's dig into this some more. So Chavez passed away in March of 2013, and then subsequently there was an election, a very close election. There were a lot of accusations, at least, of fraudulent behavior on the part of the government, and it was a very hotly contested situation. A number of people protested those elections, isn't that correct? Yeah, the opposition candidate, Mr. Capriles, asked for a full review of the votes and uh, specifically of the voter registry that at the end was denied and, and he said that there were a number of problems with the election that put in doubt some of the votes that the government uh, right. it was uh, attributed to, to its candidate. Since that time, is it fair to say you could really mark an upsurge and unification of the opposition at that point. There had been continued opposition going back a number of years opposing the Chavez government and a lot of the reforms that they were trying to make and the changes they were trying to make and, and did make in many cases. But is it fair to say that that, that election, the Capriles-Maduro election, was, was maybe a, a fomenting moment, a, a turning point, if you will, in terms of the ability of the opposition to, to come together and to really mount a challenge to this government. Is that, is that a fair statement? 
Uh, yes, I, I think it, it was probably the consolidation of the, let's call it the electoral way, and uh, the electoral alternative, uh, and a number of leading uh, political leaders in Venezuela and a number of the key political parties has been arguing that the best strategy to uh, defeat uh, the Chavez in political terms was to consolidate a social majority and then an electoral majority, uh, a majority that is able to win elections. And if the election, uh, the margin in the election is, is large enough, uh, there is no room for manipulation or, or other, you know, uh, actions by the government that could prevent the opposition of winning the election. Right. That position has been held for, for a number of years after the opposition boycotted the National Assembly election in 2005. Right. And they didn't participate, but it was like a very bad political result and that led to a different uh, alternative. Let's talk about some of the strange economic times that the Chavez and Maduro governments have wrought upon Venezuela. Um, it's been a very bizarre time where you've seen stories of iPhones being priced at thousands of dollars, whereas you might be able to buy some other luxury items at ridiculous prices based on the exchange situation and what what had exchange controls, what didn't have exchange controls. There were stories of shiploads of rotten food coming in to the country to take advantage of the currency controls, and yet at the same time, shortages of food where people were standing in line. So let's talk about that a little bit. When did the currency control regime first get enacted? That was... Yeah, in 2003. It was after the, the government uh, facing a, a challenging economic situation in terms of a relatively low price of oil which is uh, the main export of Venezuela and the source of 96% of the currency that uh, enters the country. And after facing a general strike that produces a very uh, difficult uh, year in economic terms, uh, they decided to, to set the exchange rate control. Not only it was fixed by the government exchange rate, but it has been increasing very, very slowly, even though Venezuela is facing one of the highest inflation in the world. Right. Uh, so nowadays, uh, we're in a situation in which the most of the official uh, allocation of currency is carried out at the 6.3 bolivars per dollar. Uh, that's the official rate. Right. But the black market rate, it is uh, close to 900 bolivars per, per dollar. Uh, in the official exchange rate, it's very, very difficult to get access to currency because it, it is tight controlled by the government. Right. And there is actually no, uh, as you can imagine, the demand is very, very high. Right. But the, the black market, it's illegal. Uh, you cannot do the transaction. And that, that generates a huge distortion, a, 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 a very important economic distortion because basically the same dollar can be obtained at 630 or 900. Right. So just to put that in perspective for our listeners here in the United States, so essentially the government official exchange rate is 6.3 bolivares per dollar. Whereas in the gray or black markets where currency actually exchanges hands and goods exchange hands, 
uh, and they are exchanged for either bolivares or dollars. These things are often priced at nine hundred. I've seen quotes even as high as a thousand to to one. So when you think about the potential disparities, if you will, in pricing. What has been an example, Richard, of, of what you've seen as the most egregious, most shocking pricing distortion that you've seen? Oh, the, there, there are numbers. Uh, and basically everything that is priced in Bolivares and it's made uh, with a local production, it has ridiculously low prices, including the, 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 the salaries and the income of the people. Right. So right now, we, we, Venezuela is facing a, a very severe crisis, not only in terms of, of the economy, but probably it's a, one, it's a country in which the, the, the labor force uh, has been subject to a significant decrease in, the, in its purchasing power. Right. But for example, a, a bottle of water uh, costs something like, like a cent of a dollar. Right. Uh, the, the, the gasoline price, which is heavily subsidized by the government, uh, you can get a full tank of gasoline by, with uh, 50 cents. Or something right. like that. And so it's 50 U.S. cents for a full tank of gasoline, which is extreme even by these recent low oil price standards. So just to put it in perspective, a gallon at retail today in Richmond, Virginia is about $1.95 per gallon. So it would cost you anywhere, depending on how big your tank is, it's going to cost you anywhere from, say, 25 to $30 to fill up your tank, whereas in Caracas, you could go fill up the same vehicle for about 50 cents. Is that right? Actually, I was wrong. It's uh, it's closer to a five cents. Closer to five cents. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So even, even more. Now, that has also created, hasn't there been quite a bit of strife and conflict with Colombia because there's been a lot of illegal exports into Colombia where people have been smuggling oil and, and gasoline out of the country and, and, and diesel out of the country and into Colombia on the border. Is that right? Of course. Uh, the, the price differential with Colombia, it's something like one to two uh, thousand right. uh, in terms of the gasoline price. So there's a lot of smuggling uh, of gasoline from Venezuela to Colombia, but it also happened with a number of other uh, food products and other goods that are priced in Bolivares at a very uh, low price, uh, and, uh, and it has uh, it, and, and this is creating an, an economy in which it, it, there is a lot of uh, shortages and scarcity. So, in terms of the daily life of the Venezuelan, uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time. Uh, just uh, making lines, uh, waiting in the supermarkets, in the grocery stores, for to 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 get access uh, to the products because uh, there is not enough supplies to meet the demand. Uh, people has to wait at the at the markets to see if they can get some of the products. The scarcity uh, index for some products is close to. Uh, 50%, uh, 80%. Uh, uh, there are some products, some basic products which are very difficult to, to find. Right now, the government has set the price of X uh, at a price that the producers feel that is not enough to cover their cost. So naturally, what is happening is that it's very difficult to get X right now in Venezuela. Right. To, just to name uh, a, a few products. This is Full Disclosure. I'm Craig Sheely and for Robin Farzat. 
We are on speaking with Richard Abucci via Skype from Caracas, Venezuela. Richard is a professor of public policy and economics at IESA, the leading business school in Venezuela, and an economic advisor to various government groups. So, Richard, as you look at where we are right now, you've got a situation where you have a, a set of opposition that is that has come together. Uh, let me ask you a question about the opposition. How, I mean, clearly there are a lot of very real economic problems that need to get addressed in Venezuela. And there's been this, this opposition that has come together to challenge the Chavez-Maduro regime and begin the process of solving those problems. Who actually makes up that opposition? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is this a cohesive opposition group that really has a clear vision? Who is stepping forward as the leader of that opposition group? And what are their top priorities? Well, uh, as you can imagine, the, the composition in Venezuela, it's uh, very diverse uh, people that have different views in different issues. Uh, a lot of people that began in, politi- in politics at the same time than Chavez, uh, I mean in the last uh, uh, 10, 15 years, and uh, well, a whole gener- generation and older a generation of politicians that, that, that well, well, want to participate in, in politics, but they do not share uh, the, the government view on a number of issues. Uh, I think that in the last uh, years, the, uh, the opposition has made uh, an incredible, uh, imp- uh, a very significant effort to unify uh, first uh, candidates uh, and electoral alliances in order to, to make a unified front in front uh, for to, to face the the government and they have been very successful doing that uh, uh, as uh, the results of the national assembly elections show in which basically all, most uh, all the votes were uh, all the deputies all the, the representatives were allocated to the chavista Party or to the uh, opposition party, the the the, the mood. The mood. Uh, yeah, uh, but they, they uh, but there are uh, there are a number of issues. I think that one key element is that in general, uh, nobody really think that the way that the government has been conducting the economy, uh, it's the way to proceed in the future. An economy that is uh, based on conflict. Uh, an economy in which there is no room for for investment and, and productivity, uh, uh, an economy in which the government wants to control everything. I, I think that that's not the the view uh, in general. I think that there is a lot of conscience uh, about the harmful effects that this kind of policies has produced in Venezuela. Right. Even though, of course, there are differences about how to proceed now on. What do you think the first order of business of this new Congress, this new National Assembly supermajority is going to be? What's the first thing they're going to attack specifically? Well, I think that the, in the last few days, the government has taken this hard stance, you know, very uh, responding very radically to the, uh, to the electoral results in a you know very negative very harmful way in the sense that they the at least in the speech it's not showing the the opportunity to talk to to reach agreements to to talk about the uh, issues that are uh, affecting the the Venezuelans uh, however i would say that the first priority of the national assembly 
is precisely to, to make the effort to propose a sound agenda that is related to the social and economic problems of the Venezuelan and to, to move forward, to try to convince the government that this is the way to proceed and to propose law initiatives that make sense right. in the current circumstances. It is not an easy task. So Maduro actually came out, I think, was it yesterday, the day before, and has, has started doing some saber rattling, sort of saying that they would mobilize the military if necessary against some of the, quote, enemies of the government, enemies of Venezuela. Is he referring to the mood? Is he referring to this this new group of, of elected officials who've come in and who oppose his policies, or is he referring to someone else? That's difficult to, to say with because the government seems to be very concerned to always have a, a, some kind of enemy in front of them, arguing that the defeat in the in the electoral in this last election was the result of the of what they call the, the, the economic war, uh, right. which is the idea that the that you know the opposition and the businessmen or some other people are putting obstacles in the economy to defeat the government. Right. Uh, it's this, this idea that there's a, some sort of economic sabotage going on and that, in fact, it doesn't have anything to do with the currency controls and price controls, but it's more of a somehow trying to convince folks that there's this economic warfare going on. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so as you think about how can the Venezuelans get food, right? I mean, that's probably one of the most immediate issues. How do we get food? How do we get diapers? How do we get toilet paper? I mean, there's been quite a bit of sometimes comical, but also very sad commentary out there regarding those topics. And is that something that's high on the agenda, just getting the basic necessities, getting to a situation where there's not a need to stand in line for three hours before one can get some of these basic necessities? Are there some things that can be done that can be steps that can be taken in the near term that will help resolve some of those issues and relieve some of that pressure? There is no doubt that Venezuela is facing a very difficult and uh, severe economic crisis. On the one hand, you have the mismanagement of the economy with all the problems that we have just mentioned, but also uh, now we are facing a record low price of oil. Right. This is the lowest price of oil uh, right. since 2009, it's soon to become the largest drop in, in oil price in history. So it is a very difficult situation for, for the Venezuelan right now. I think that one of the first measures is just to be curved, just to talk with honesty about what's going on. I think one of the roles, one of the functions of the National Assembly is to ask for, to, to, for the numbers and the figures and ask the government what's going on. Just because that's the only way to begin correcting a problem is to understand what's happening. It is really, really difficult to assess what's happening right now, precisely because, uh, for example, we don't have official figures of inflation for the whole year. The last number that we have is uh, December 2014. We don't know the scarcity index or we don't know the electricity production. We don't know the crime rate of the country because the government, it's uh, working on the basis that that would be something that could be used in political terms and it's not uh, useful to provide uh, those kind of numbers, which is something that is, uh, it doesn't really make sense because you really need opinion, you really need analysis to, to see what's going on. But uh, also, uh, well, you have to adjust the economy to the new economic reality and you have to... to, to 
change the direction of the public policy model. You you really have to, you really have to work toward the elimination of the largest and more important distortion that the economy is facing. Uh, you have to work with a, a, a you have to work in an environment that allow the people to make investments and you have to uh, uh, define more clearly what is the role of the government in this uh, economy. Uh, but in order to do, to, uh, I mean, uh, to make it happen, it's not just enough to have a law in the National Assembly. You really need the executive, you need the, the, the government to, to uh, accept that there is a need to, to do some key and profound changes in the direction of the economic policy. With the supermajority in place, will it be possible to demand a new president? Will it be possible to make moves in that direction, demand a new election? Are those things, I guess those things are theoretically possible, though there's some murky territory with respect to the laws, what is your assessment of that situation? Can this large supermajority of the mood in the National Assembly, can it make a move to make executive changes? Uh, there are two things. One is that the Constitution, the Venezuelan Constitution, allow to, for the population to ask for a recall referendum uh, once the government reached the half of the period. That's happening soon. And it's a process that is stipulated in the Constitution. You have to collect signature, 20% of the registered voters. You have to get those signatures to the National Electoral Council that is going to verify publicly who signed asking for the recall referendum. Then, if you reach the threshold, then the the, the the National Electoral Council have to call for press, for the recall referendum, and the opposition or the no, the, the I mean the the if the answer the, the ones who oppose or who support the idea of removing the president have to reach uh, half of the votes, and also in absolute terms a higher turn out than the one in which Maduro was elected. So mm-hmm. it, it is a difficult process, right. but with the numbers that, that the opposition have in the, in the last National Assembly election, it seems feasible. Right. Uh, there are other alternatives that, ha- that some people have uh, uh, talked about, uh, like the possibility of initiating a constitutional reform, but at the end it is something that, that is going to face a popular vote in order to have it approved or not. It's not right. something that the uh, that the Congress can do uh, unilaterally. Right, but they have enough power now to be able to start that process, if and as appropriate, depending on how things play out. Yeah, of course, and that's a, a key element of the of the current Venezuelan political situation is that it, it is not only about the supermajority, but the thing that the, it is very clear that the opposition have an uh, electoral majority right now. Right, right. The opposition has actually has the, the will of the people more clearly than ever before, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. This is, was a high participation election, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a presidential election. It was 75% of the uh, registered voters participated in the election. Right. In the last presidential election, it was something like 80%. And in the last National Assembly election, it was something like 65%. So it was a, a very high participation level. Right. So you had a really high participation and you had, what was the percentage of the vote that was garnered by opposition candidates? 
the PSUV, the government party, got around 38% of the total vote. Around 53% went to the opposition, to the MUD, around 2 or 3% to other candidates, and the rest were, was voters, uh, around 6% that were uh, not valid. So that's a strong majority and certainly a significant degradation. If you compare that with, for example, the first election that Chavez won. Something like 56, something similar to this number. Oh, 58. Okay. Okay. So it's almost a mirror image of... Uh, of where we were when he came to power. Is that? Yeah. Some, yeah. Interesting. That's okay. Something. This is full disclosure. I'm Craig Sheely, filling in for Robin Farzad today. We're talking with Professor Richard Obuchi, a professor of public policy and economics at AESA, a graduate school in Caracas, Venezuela. Richard, let's get into the squandering of Venezuela's wealth and oil wealth specifically. Let's talk about some real economic issues like liquidity and survivability with the current oil price where it is. You and I have actually had some interesting conversations about this separate from the show, and I'd love to get into some of that. We've touched upon it earlier in our conversation, but if you think about the last 10 years, last eight years, we've seen record high. You referenced this. I think our highest West Texas intermediate price was 147 Today, I think we touched 34 and change. Where did all that wealth go? Because clearly it didn't get reinvested into the economy of Venezuela. Where did it go over the last eight years, 10 years, seven years, where we've seen this great economic opportunity for the country, but it hasn't gone to improve anything? Where has where that capital gone? Where is it, where is it flown to? Well, there's a basic difference in in public policy, in the management of the economy, uh, which is the difference between uh, expand money and invest money. And clearly what happened in Venezuela is that uh, a number of uh, policies were sustained in terms of expenditure, but not in terms of improving long-term conditions of the Venezuelan. So we don't have right now a better educational system or uh, better highways or better airports or ports or or better health system. It was an economy based on short-term subsidies, on ports, on short-term benefits for the population, but it was clearly sustained on the basis of the oil income. So the government, for example, took the easy track of spending a lot of money in imports to try to supply the the local markets. That have one very negative effect that the imports displaced local production. And now that we don't have the oil income, uh, we don't have the imports, but we don't have either the local production, the local supply. And that's uh, terrible news for the economy. Right. Let's talk about that a little more specifically. So basically what would happen is the government would import and then essentially subsidize. I mean, gasoline is one example. There's actually not significant refining capacity in Venezuela. There's a lot of, there's a lot of heavy sour crude, but not refining capacity. And so essentially what was being done was you're exporting that crude, you're trading that crude for refined products that you can essentially heavily subsidize per our earlier conversation where you could fill your car up for five cents, roughly US equivalent. This has happened in, in every single product, right? I mean, you look at eggs, you look at chicken, you look at vegetables, you look at any number of different food products, whether they've been processed or not. You look at even refined 
crude products, as I mentioned. You look at consumer goods of all types. I mean, is there any area? Is there at this point? Is there any domestic production really of, of anything to speak of left? Because the the subsidized prices that the Chavez and Maduro regime insisted on delivering were unsustainable price levels for local production, right? That's basically, and they use their oil largesse to finance that, right? Exactly. We, we have an economy in which the, the private sector and the productive sector has suffered a lot. For example, there are a lot of restrictions to access cement and steel bars in the construction sector, and that has led for a significant decrease in the construction in Venezuela. We have the manufacturing processes. They have huge debt with international suppliers because the government has not met its obligation in terms of delivering the currency it has. So it is a very difficult situation and a very difficult economic environment for anybody doing business in Venezuela. How much of this leakage of economic opportunity, if you will, this loss of opportunity, how much of it is a result of graph and corruption, or is that really inconsequential? It's more of the large-scale programs that were really poorly thought out with respect to having a long-term productive economy. How much leakage do you think happened in terms of actual just corruption and leakage of wealth that way? It is very difficult to assess something like that, but uh, clearly there are a number of issues. Venezuela has one of the highest perception of corruption in the world, at right. least for according to some studies. And it, it is clear that if you have that much discretionary power, you certainly have the conditions for corruption to arise. Let's unpack that a little bit for our listeners. So basically explaining how that occurred. So what happened... Uh, and jump in here if I misstate anything. What happened is you had a situation where the government started putting in place currency controls for a variety of reasons, but the government then controlled the access to dollars. And then the government also controlled pricing of many of these goods. So you had to be connected to the government in order to get access to these favorable exchange rates, right? Yeah, of course. Right. Uh, remember, it is illegal to use the black market. Right. Uh, so if you are a company and you are the conducting businesses in Venezuela, you cannot get dollars in the black market without the risk of being penalized because uh, you cannot register that you got uh, a dollar for uh, X number of bolivares. Right. By the same token, there's, there's a wide open opportunity for graph and corruption because if you have access to those dollars, there's a huge spread between what that product is worth. In fact, we can talk a little bit about the fact that there was a number of goods that were actually not ever even imported into the country. They were imported on paper, but never in reality. The reason I thought of 2007, 2008 as the beginning of these things is that's, that's when it really exploded, right? Where you really saw the people starting to really take advantage of those bizarre currency situations as well, right? Yeah, uh, a number of behaviors arise because of this uh, system. For example, the government has to approve and allocate a currency if you want to get it at that price. And most right. of the uh, currency, it's delivered by the government, because it's supplier. Uh, but even a, a minister of the Chavista government said that there were a number of fake companies uh, abusing the system and uh, there were like $20 billion uh, that were allocated and didn't bring anything to, to the country. 
then again, it, it is very difficult to assess that, but it, it is very obvious that something it's right. happening and that you have to be connected in order to get the currency. Uh, very productive, important, and, and significant companies in the country will have these uh, huge problems to get access to the currency. Well, Richard, in our last few minutes, and I know you need to go here, tell me about your hopes, if you will, sort of what, where do you hope to see Venezuela in five years and 10 years? And then also just realistically, what if you could kind of bake into that view, the background of oil prices and where they are and where they need to be relative to keeping the current government afloat, not falling into default on government bonds and getting into an even worse financial crisis, or maybe that's unavoidable. But talk to me about where do you see the next five years? How do you see this playing out? And where do you see the country in that time frame? If the right sequence of actions are taken, if there are clear goals, confidence and trust is restituted in the country, I would say that we can see a significant, a uh, large positive change in the Venezuelan economy in the future. Of course, it is difficult to foresee right now how long it's going to take. It is clearly related to the evolution of the social and political situation in Venezuela. Right. I believe that the Venezuela have uh, great opportunities ahead and that all Venezuelans deserve to be in a much better situation than what they are right now. And I guess just in the in our last couple minutes here, talk to me about where do we need to be in order to avoid a major default? Can we get there? I know that we've looked at um, 2017, just for our listeners' benefits. 2017, there's a, a large wave of maturities of both government and uh, the state-sponsored oil companies' bonds coming due. And that's a big concern relative to where the price of oil is today. And where do we need to be to avoid a, a calamity, even with reforms, which will take a while to pass and implement? Where do we need to be in order to avoid that calamity? Do you have a do you have a view on that in terms of a recovery in oil price? In this year, 2015, the government faced a, a large decrease in the oil income. It's uh, it was about half of what it was in 2014. And in order to adjust to that drop in the oil price, the government cut imports, particularly private imports. It uses a lot of its international reserves. and It sold some of the foreign assets and trying to get more money. And they can try to do something like that next year. I mean, uh, uh, Venezuela is going to face a, a very difficult situation because nowadays the oil price of Venezuela is about $33 per barrel, which is a third of what it was just a little more than a year ago. Right. So that's a significant decrease in the oil income and basically the inflow of currency to the country. The government could try to, to restrict imports further, which is going to have an effect on the economic growth. And also, it would try to get some uh, additional dollars or, or additional currency selling some of the assets that remains in the international reserves or other assets. But as, as time passes, uh, it, it is you know a little bit harder to do this kind of operation because yeah. the East ones are the ones that you do first. We've been speaking with Richard Obucci via Skype from Caracas, Venezuela. Richard is a professor of public policy and economics at the leading business school down there. Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been great having you. 
Craig, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. Full disclosure, I'm Craig Sheely, filling in for Robin Farzad. We are joined now via Skype from London by Carlos Ramirez, an independent trader and financial analyst covering Venezuelan bonds, among other products. Carlos is also a co-founder and partner of Cresca International, a financial services firm focusing on assisting Venezuelans with international payments. Carlos, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Carlos, you have had a front row seat in some of the most egregious, crazy, and wild transactions that that I've ever heard of. Uh, In the interest of full disclosure, Carlos and I have known each other for a very long time and are very good friends as well as family members. Uh, But Carlos, tell us a little bit about some of the most egregious transactions you've seen. I know there was uh, shiploads of rotten food brought into Venezuela that were taking advantage of the currency arbitrage opportunities. There was a a fake Amazon.com. There were people filling private jets and flying to Miami for shopping sprees using black market, gray market dollars. Give me the top three crazy transactions you saw in your time dealing with some of this. Well, thanks for having me here, first of all. And then, well, my career started in 2006, 2007, as a broker in one of the biggest uh, investment uh, firm or broker house in Venezuela. I was dealing and I was working in initial offerings uh, with mainly uh, PDVSA and Venezuelan debt, as well as in one of the issues, and it was Argentina involved. And in that stage, you usually you see very, very bad deals and situation happenings in many of the a small or just new in the market broker house. Uh, you could see people buying like the identification or the photocopy of an ID and filling like the contract between the person and, and the broker house. So let's explain that in terms that our U.S. listeners can understand. So basically, any individual citizen of Venezuela had the right, at least in theory, to buy certain types of bonds, certain types of issues, or do certain types of transactions, which allowed them at the time to get access to dollars at a preferential rate at the fixed rate. Is that correct? Exactly. Probably not the official rate, but it was official in terms of the cash out of the sale of the bond. So it was right. it was a sub, sort of official exchange, yeah. You're right. And by being a citizen, you had, in theory, at least the right to buy these bonds. So people were actually going out and buying people's ID. That didn't, people that didn't know better, didn't know they necessarily had that right or didn't have the capital to do it, you'd go out, not you, but you saw people go out and buy personal IDs and then go out and use those IDs to transact. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So basically... Uh, in one of the offerings that I remember that I was working with, the, this deal didn't happen in the in the broker house that I was at the moment, but I saw it happen. So let's say that you could buy until five thousand dollars between Venezuelan debt and Argentinian debt, and because you have this cap, you couldn't use all the equity that you have at that moment. So what you do, you go after a hundred people, and then you pay a very very tiny fee because people actually didn't understand what were you doing with AD. Suddenly, instead of buying five hundred, uh, five thousand, equivalent to five thousand dollars, you were buying five hundred thousand dollars. Right. So people were levering up as well, based yeah. on yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I know you were also aware of, uh, and maybe you wouldn't rank this in the top three or so of egregious transactions, but 
wasn't there a an Amazon.com equivalent where people were going out and buying stuff that never actually came? Is that right? What really happened is a ton of people start opening merchants in an offshore place. So they're buying, but of course they weren't buying anything. What they, they were buying was a fee in terms of somebody processing the transaction from them and then setting a wire transfer to a bank account that you told them. So the good didn't exist. What were you buying was a, actually the transaction. Right. But the transaction, instead of being 1% or 2%, people sometimes were paying like 20%, which of course everybody was happy because then you had the right to actually save those dollars. Right. So let's walk people through one of these transactions because it was always fascinating to me seeing how this happened. So as a citizen of Venezuela, you would mm-hmm. you would be you, you had the right you had the right, you had the right to buy at the time, let's say this is two thousand eight, two thousand nine, you had the right to buy what at one point what three thousand or five thousand dollars worth of dollars at say somewhere around the official exchange rate and use that money to shop in the United States. Is that right? Is that an example, right? Yeah. And now in reality that in the black market or the gray market, your $3,000 actually cost you if you could get those in terms of Bolivares, would actually cost you maybe at that time $1,000? Yeah. Maybe somewhere like that. The spread always, I mean, since I since, since I have knowledge, since I start working, that I start working a bit, a few years later on in this process of the capital controls, the spread was very often 50%, 60%, 70% out of the exchange rate. Um, at that time, probably in mind, that was 50%, 60%. That would be quite, quite accurate. Right. So let's say so you, you spend $1,000 or the equivalent of $1,000 in the black market. You buy $3,000 worth of goods from a fictitious Amazon.com equivalent. Yep. Then you give, let's say, 20 or 30% of that to the Amazon.com equivalent yep. so who's clearing that transaction for you. Yeah. So that group gets, you know, let's say $1,000. You get $2,000. Yep. And it costs you 1000 So everybody wins except except, exactly. the, except the government of Venezuela. Exactly. Right. Basically. Basically, yeah. Right. Yeah. I just wanted to walk through a transaction like that for our listeners because that kind of thing was happening on all kinds of scale. That type of thing was happening and everything from – and has happened even still I think a lot less today than it was over the last seven or eight years. But, you know, there were – People doing that again with you know shiploads of cargoes of various types, which may or may not ever be sold anywhere, but they would at least ostensibly be sent to Venezuela, right? Yeah. What was another? Let's say what would have made your top three of really crazy deals that you saw happen in that time frame? By the end of the it was basically this this broker house situation, and it was a sort of one of the last thing that I saw was a transaction uh, sponsored by the government where they were issued a debt called bonus cambiarios, which, which was basically exchange bonds. Right. It was a very short-term bond. It was like 90 days maturity. Mm-hmm. And basically, they called out the offer like at 11.45 a.m. Uh-huh. Um, by 12, the broker house need to route all the orders to the central bank. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, basically, you, I had all my list of clients with a form already filled that just in case I had times to fill the report, the Excel, basically Excel spreadsheet right. uh, and log, you know, my, my clients into that. Right. It was the only way that basically they could participate. Talk about those bonds, because I remember you telling me about those, and, and they've done a series of these off and on over the years. These bonds were a lot of times exchanged at the, uh, you could essentially buy them at the equivalent of the fixed exchange rate, but then they actually, you could exchange into essentially the black market rate. Is that right? Something yeah, like no, that? But, but it's a little bit more about that, because yes, you could buy the, uh, the official rate, however, they were trading very often into a deep discount. Right. At the official rate, they traded in the initial offering a premium. Mm-hmm. And then when you sell it to an international broker, you sell a discount. That was the number exactly of the of the black market. It was the money that you could get cut off the price of the bond mm-hmm. to get the equivalent to the black market. Yeah. So if it was way below that price, then you don't sell it because the dollar were too expensive. Right. So it was very tricky for the broker to have the pricing, but it was very successful for the investor because he always, very often, he makes 30 50% return. But you had to have pretty inside information, if you will, forgive the term, but you had to have a pretty clear uh, insight into when that bond offering was going to occur because it might be a 15-minute window. Yeah. 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 So the government would say, I'm going to offer these bonds, and boom, you, you may or may not get it, and, and you had a very, very tight window to to put that order in. So I also, for example, I heard about this broker house having this spreadsheet basically by companies that they own or by friends that they know them because their order was too quick. And then, of course, the deposit couldn't come in into the time frame to the broker house. The cash deposit, the, the equity deposit, basically. Mm-hmm. So the broker house funds all the account. Right. Get filled. And if for some reason you couldn't pay the next few hours that you have the bond issuing to you or the if your order was filled, then probably the broker house kept the order right. for them. For themselves, but right. not Yeah, but not only that. I, sometimes they even fill all these orders and they keep them. Oh, I see. So it was actually the money weren't going to an investor or weren't, or weren't grabbing any excess of liquidity. There was a transaction mainly run by the broker house. I see. So they were basically using the credentials of their clients to get access to the bonds. Wow. Yeah. So exciting times, crazy things happening in the Venezuelan markets. How have you kept up with it today? I mean, I know you're you're still somewhat involved in that. I mean, I guess a lot of that has changed with the intensified controls from the government trying to crack down on these types of activities. But I guess presumably a lot of this stuff is still happening to a degree. Is that right? It could be happening. And if it's happening right now, it's happening the biggest scale that you're ever going to see. I don't know, ever again, but in a very, very long term, mm-hmm. you're not going to see this kind of thing because right now you have the biggest spread that I think any Venezuelans has ever seen. Between the uh, black market and the official market. And the official market. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is crazy, which is something that it blows anybody's mind. Right. And I think if that is happening right now, someone is making a ton of money. But <laughs> the thing is, because of the low liquidity in currency, even the people that has access to this kind of transaction is struggling at the moment. Right. Well, let's talk about why that has occurred and, and talk a little bit about 
I know, you know, one of the things I know you follow closely is PDVSA, the state oil company, their bonds, as well as Venezuelan sovereign bonds. One of the big problems with these instruments, obviously, is a combination of stronger dollar, weaker oil prices, oil prices below really a, a point of solvency in many cases for PDVSA and, and the government potentially as we look forward into 2016, 2017. Where do you see that oil prices need to be in order to keep Venezuela afloat, if you will? What is your view on that? This number is very hard to call. I, I, I think I would make a number up if I give you a number. However, in the next few years, I think we could see Venezuela struggling to pay back capital, even though that you can have a, even a, a higher price of oil. Mm-hmm. Even though well, we can have a $60, $70 per barrel, we could struggle to pay the debt. There are too many agreements and there are too many international loans and there are too many ways and there are too many kind of oil that we're selling not only in the OPEC, OPEP quote, but also we're, we, we are selling, we're doing some deals external to those uh, with the Chinese. Oh, right. Venezuela is trading oil itself up, right? So I would be actually lying if I give you a number. I have no idea how it's much safe, money. It's safe to say it needs to be higher. It need to be higher. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What um, we're going to see in respect to PDVSA that in case we have a, a, a very dark moment, the way that I see it, I don't see, probably I don't see a default as many people can, can see it. I can see a restructuring. Mm-hmm. Right. In terms of increasing the maturities and maybe giving a better coupon to the investors. Mm-hmm. But different than any other countries in the region, Whatever the price is, we're going to still have the cash flow out of oil. Right. There'll still be cash flow. Do you think that the this recent election of the supermajority of the, of the mood, the opposition party coalition, do you think this means it'll be more amenable to a, a reasonable restructuring, which may need to occur in either PDVSA or sovereign bonds, either one? Or do you think this could cause even more tumult in how such a situation got ultimately gets resolved. In the next year, next couple of years, I think it could be a struggle even more because they need to agree in what are going to be the new monetary policy or the new fiscal policies that the country is going to play by. How did the bonds react to the reaction just in the last few days? Well, right now they were trading lower even that before the election. But of course, we have a 10%, 12%, 15% drop on oil price in this last week. Right. From 40 to 34. So in WTI, which means that probably... The Venezuelan oil should be like five bucks under that. Right. Trading at 30 or 29. So So I think technically you owe me um, a nice bottle of Lafitte. Isn't that right? Well, you need to trade below 30. (laughs) Well, but Venezuelan oil is already broken 30, man. Yeah, in Venezuelan terms. For our listeners' benefit, Carlos and I have a pretty significant bet on oil price. I I think it's going to continue to go down, and I'm going to maintain that I've actually won because – Venezuelan oil is now below 30. Carlos, just in the last couple minutes as we close up, as you think about this opposition win, this huge opposition win here just this past week in the election in Venezuela, what do you see as the economic future over the next five years? Where do you see things going? Do you see real reforms happening? Do you see the balance sheet of the country getting straightened out? What does your crystal ball tell you over the next five plus years? 
I could see in the in the in the next couple of years a big divergence in monetary policy in terms of the whatever the opposition wants or whatever the government wants. But it's not only that. I think if we see any recovery, it's not going to be ordered than because of the oil prices recover. Mm-hmm. As you may know, 95% or more of our revenues come out of oil. Right. So no matter how good you do your reforms, I think right now we're in a very big hole. Right. And if we don't have an extra cash and if we don't have that coming out of oil, then of course it's going to be even a bigger struggle for Venezuela to agree in any, any new monetary policy that could help the country to go through these bad moments. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is you think even with some healthy reforms, it's going to be very difficult to get much of a recovery economically. It's going to be very difficult to get past the bumpy spots with respect to sovereign debt and PDVSA debt, which is essentially sovereign debt. It's going to be very difficult to get through those things without some recovery in oil prices and, yeah. a, and a pretty meaningful recovery. Yeah, right. exactly that. You said just right. Carlos, thank you so much for joining. We appreciate you joining us here on short notice and being a part of this discussion. It's been great to have you. All right. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you very much for having me. This has been Full Disclosure. Our engineer is John Valentine. Find us on NPR One, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and WRIR. On Twitter, we're at Full D Radio. I'm Craig Sheely, in for Robin Farzad. We'll be back with you next week. 